Amen. Um, last week on uh, President's Day weekend, so some of you guys might have missed it, um, the, we talked about the passage preceding our text uh, this morning. And the passage in the text of preceding our passage this morning was one that shook the disciples a little bit. In it, Jesus told them that he, their long-awaited Messiah King, who would even use the title the Son of Man, which is a title of glory and power and dominion from the Old Testament, predicting the coming of the Messiah. Jesus told the disciples that he would have to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and ultimately be killed and rise again on the third day. And this shook the disciples. It rattled them. And then he went on to tell them, not only will he suffer, but also anyone that follows Jesus must willingly suffer for his sake as well. Taking up their cross, denying themselves, giving up their lives that they might gain true life in order to follow him. And if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, Jesus' teaching is not only a little bit rattling to his disciples, it's also a little bit rattling to us. Are we willing to deny ourselves? To potentially, to potentially give up on our notions of worldly fulfillment and happiness, whether that be in career or family or financial security or social respect or suburban comforts, whatever it might be for you, for the sake of following Jesus? And furthermore, is it worth it? And even if it's worth it, do you and I have what it takes to follow Jesus in such a remarkably radical and life-shaping way? And on the heels of Jesus explaining and giving this revelation of his own suffering and the call for his own disciples to suffer for his sake, Jesus says this in verse 1, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is saying, and the gospel of Mark, the way it is structured, the narrative is leading us into the transfiguration. And it's showing us that as we enter into understanding Jesus' suffering and the suffering that he calls us to for his sake, we're going to need to know something of his glory and his power. Now, a quick aside as we enter into talking about the transfiguration there's a lot of things about this story, as Brad alluded to, in a disenchanted world that we live in, that seem fantastical to us. And if you're here this morning and you're skeptical of Christianity, I want to encourage you to let the beauty and marvel of this scene actually draw you in. As one uh, non-religious observer said, I, I'm a fan of um, musician Sufjan Stevens, and he has a simple song about the transfiguration. And, and this one non-religious observer said, after listening to this song, I can't even describe the way this song makes me feel, and I'm not even religious. There's something about the scene of the transfiguration that connects deeply with us as human beings. It is beautiful, and it evokes in us longings. And on the heels of talking about suffering, Mark tells us, that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There's this sense of intimacy that we feel in the story as he invites the disciples that he is closest to up the mountain with him. 
to this majestic place, a place of meeting with God that throughout the Old Testament symbolized a place of meeting with God up on top of the mountain, and then something marvelous happens. Mark says that that Jesus was transfigured before them, that something about him changed and shifted, and that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We're not talking about uh, doing a load of uh, laundry where you put 20 Tide Pods in. No, something is happening that is out of the ordinary. Something otherworldly is happening. Jesus himself is emanating light. The book of Revelation at the end of the Bible gives us this imagery of light in the renewed world, in the renewed cosmos, coming not from the sun or the moon, but from God himself. And the Lamb of God, it says, will be the lamp of the world that the nations will walk by. And here in this passage, Jesus is emanating light. His glory is being revealed. And then it tells us in verse 4 that there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, who are Elijah and Moses? They're two of the greatest prophets of God's people who had encountered the living God. Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. He was God's messenger for the Ten Commandments and actually saw God's glory in Exodus 34. And Elijah proved God's greatness over the false gods and had been given great power by God. He was prophesied to come as a messenger before God's promised Messiah. And God met Elijah in the famous scene that many of you have probably heard or been familiar with, the famous scene where the wind and the earthquake and the fire come, but God came instead in a still, small voice. This moment that is happening for James and John and Peter is a Hall of Fame moment for a Jew. They would have been utterly overwhelmed and starstruck, and yet Jesus seems to talk with Moses and Elijah as though they are friends. Jesus is showing that he is in the company of the great prophets, but he's not just in their company. As Danny alluded to earlier from our passage from Hebrews, he is greater than them. Moses had reflected God's light and God's glory in the Old Testament, but the glory in this story is emanating from Jesus. The disciples are overwhelmed. They're in awe, and Peter stutters out these words. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. (laughs) And I love what verse 6 says. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's pretty relatable, right? It's like a very ramped up version of like, you know, you're, uh, you're leaving the grocery store and somebody says, um, come back and see us. And you say, you too. And you're like, uh. It's a super ramped up version of that. Peter doesn't know what to say. And his words may be naive and comical and even relatable. But Peter also gets something very right. Even though it can be terrifying To be in the presence of God, there is something that is remarkably good about being in his very presence and to be in awe of him. The disciples are terrified, and yet they don't want to be anywhere else. When I was in seminary, I uh, had a project. I was taking um, 
an intro to counseling class. And I was, I was doing this project that I needed some help uh, with, and so I went to meet with my professor. And I expected, as I walked into his office, to sit down in the chair on the opposite side of his desk from him and, and talk through this project that was a very personal project, had to do a lot of uh, self-reflection and, and work in my own story. And as I sat down to work on this project, he got up from behind his desk, and he came over, and he sat in the seat right next to me so that he could peer over the papers that I had um, with me. And as he sat down beside me, it was this incredibly vulnerable moment where I'm like wrestling through all this stuff and talking about my own story in these incredibly vulnerable places, feeling a little bit terrified. And then this man comes, and he, it was the, one of the most present experiences I've ever had of another human being. I mean, it helps probably that he's a counseling professor. <laughs> and he just came and sat beside me with just incredible presence. And I was sort of terrified and also, it was so incredibly good. I was terrified, but I also didn't want to be anywhere else. And the disciples find themselves in the same place, but with the God of the universe in the person of Jesus. And on the heels of revealing that Jesus must suffer, be rejected, and ultimately kill, killed, on the heels of calling his followers to take up their cross, to deny themselves, to follow him into suffering, Jesus reveals the depth of his glory. And he reveals that in him, suffering and glory meet. Things that we may see as completely incompatible, but Jesus says, I am both. And all that is true and good and holy emanates from Jesus. He says, I have power and glory if I want it, and yet I willingly suffer for your sake. And there is no better place to be than to be in the presence of Jesus who is both glorious and willingly humble. In short, what Jesus invites the disciples into on the heels of revealing the necessity of suffering is worship. What happens in this passage is in part what worship is, getting a glimpse of who God is and standing in awe of it. The transfiguration is revealing that Jesus is worthy of the disciples' worship, and it reveals to us as well that Jesus, though personal and intimate, up on a mountain with his disciples, is glorious and beckons us to worship him. The transfiguration reveals that Jesus is worthy of worship. And in the context of Mark chapter 9, it reveals that part of what the disciples need, who are grappling with Jesus being a suffering, rejected Messiah, and grappling with his stark call to self-denial, part of what they need is worship. When God's people gather together, we believe that when we gather on a Sunday morning like this, that we are literally in God's presence. And then as we sing about and to this glorious yet suffering servant and the Father who sends him, we begin to glimpse into heaven. As we sing this imagery together, we get a taste of it. And glimpsing into his glory equips and empowers us to live as Jesus has called us to live. It shapes us. 
We cannot live as the people of God who deny ourselves and take up our cross unless we are a people who gather in worship to form our lives around Jesus, who is our glorious and suffering Messiah. Have you ever walked or hiked through the mountains on a fall day and seen the turning foliage and been in awe? Or maybe listen to a song that moves you and slows you down with its beauty, or the sound of a rushing mountain river winding through the snow and been in awe. That sense is a part of what worship is. It is stopping to stare not just at the beauty of nature, but at the beauty of God. And we must worship if we are going to be able to follow this radiant and humble Jesus into suffering. But the transfiguration calls us not only into worship, it also calls us to listen. It says in verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. As if things weren't crazy enough yet, as the disciples are taking in this scene, a cloud sweeps in and overshadows them. This cloud is not an alien imagery to a Jewish person God appearing in the form of a cloud is not a new image. In the Old Testament, God led Israel by day in a cloud, and God's glory is embodied in a cloud in the Israelite temple. And God appeared to Moses in a cloud on Mount Sinai. The Jewish disciples have a context for this. And they realize that they are encountering Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And from this cloud, God speaks, and he says, This is my beloved Son. The same beloved son language that God uttered over Jesus in Mark chapter 1, just before Jesus' temptation in the desert. And here as Jesus is about to enter into an even deeper season of struggle and wilderness and the temptation to avoid the suffering of the cross, the father reminds his son of his love. And it becomes clear that God is not just reminding Jesus of his love for his sake. He's talking to Peter and James and John. And he's telling them, the one who will suffer for you, the one who calls you to suffer, is my beloved son. And then God says, listen to him. This is the direct instruction that we all long for from God, and it comes here to the disciples. And what does Jesus say? Or what does God say? Listen to Jesus. <laughs> you know, I've been in ministry for, gosh, I don't know, 11 years, 16 years, depending on how you count it. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation, whether with skeptics or Christians struggling with doubt or Christians trying to make life decisions. And I'm willing to bet that you have, have had this thought as well. I know I have. We think to ourselves, if only God would speak directly to me in a voice from heaven it would sure solve a lot of my problems. Then it would be a lot easier. And here, in this passage, God speaks audibly, directly to his disciples, and what does he say? Listen to Jesus. Similarly, in John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus tells his disciples, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. God is saying at the end of the day, listening to Jesus 
is actually what we most need. It's not an audible voice from heaven that the disciples need at every turn. It is rather listening to Jesus that they most need. And what is Jesus telling his disciples? Jesus is telling them who he is and what he has come to do and what he has called them to do as a result of it. In the very conversation that follows, we see Jesus fielding the disciples' questions and explaining and reiterating, reiterating who he is and what he has come to do. And it says in verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. God the Father has told the disciples that they, what they most need is to listen to Jesus, and then he leaves them with Jesus only. This momentary glimpse into heaven is over, but they have exactly what they need for the task before them in order to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. And what do they have that they need? They have the gloriously suffering king who knows them and who will give himself for them, and their job is to listen. And beloved, that's our job too. We not, may not be with the physical Jesus walking around Judea, but he's given us his words. He's told us who he is and what he came to do. The whole of the scriptures are pointing to him. This idea of listening has gotten a little bit messed up in our day and age. We confuse listening to ourselves with listening to Jesus. And people commonly say, God has told me to go to school here. God told me to do this job or God told me this or that. And we assume that what we need from God and what we ought to expect from God is an audible voice telling us how to do each week and every task. And it's no wonder that we want that because that would be a lot easier. But that is not the expectation that God is giving his disciples here. Nor is it the implication for us as followers of Jesus, but rather the task is to listen to what Jesus has said about who he is and what he's done for us. And when we grasp that, we begin to have a framework for how to make all of the day-to-day -day decisions that God calls us to. It gives us a lens to look through and ask, Jesus has had mercy on me. How must I have mercy on others? Will taking this job allow me to participate in Jesus' restoration of the world through ethical work and creating good things? Will adding this or that commitment allow me to love my friends and my neighbors the way Jesus has loved me? You see, listening to what Jesus has to say does not mean God tells us exactly what to do in every situation but rather listening to what he says. What he said he came to do for us means that we will begin to ask what it means to follow him in everyday life. It begins to, shape, uh, to give shape to what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. This listening is honestly way harder, but it is better. Because in this way, we don't only learn what to do, but Jesus transforms us into people who trust him as we do it. He makes us into the people that we are intended to be. See, what we want from Jesus is sheet music so that we can simply follow note by note. But that doesn't require that much of us. We just get a skill, we execute, and we move on. But Jesus is teaching his disciples to improvise. He's saying, here is who I am. 
and how I love you. Now, what would it mean to apply that when I get arrested? Or when I die? Or when you are persecuted? In order to be people who can improvise in life, we must know the music better. We must invest ourselves. We must listen. What inhibits us from this kind of listening? Man, there's so many things. It requires stillness and reflection. We have to stop from all the busyness and sit. It's even part of why we're doing this daily prayer guide through the Lenten season. is because we need structured things that can help us slow down and reflect and pray and listen. We have to engage with our discomforts and insecurities to listen to Jesus. And this is maybe one of the hardest ones that we are not very honest with ourselves about most of the time, I think. That if we're going to listen to Jesus and cultivate listening to him, we have to allow Jesus to challenge us and to change our priorities. We have to open ourselves up to that. And sometimes we don't want to stop and listen to Jesus because we fear that he actually might call us to change. We must pour over Jesus' words and the whole of Scripture, praying that he would teach us what it means to love him and others and that he would change us in the process. We must listen to Jesus, what he's done for us and what it means to follow him. Peter hoped that they could stay on the mountain forever in the presence of the transfigured Jesus with Moses and Elijah, but the time for them to stay on the mountain had not yet come. For now, the disciples have to come down from the mountain into the valley and head toward Jerusalem where their leader will be arrested, crucified, and raised. And they must walk in the valley where they will be persecuted. And some of they themselves will be crucified for their faith. But the transfiguration reveals that for Jesus' disciples to be able to follow Jesus wherever he leads, they will need to worship and they will need to listen. And so also must we. But the final invitation for us in this passage is an invitation for us to walk in the valley. Verse 9 says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus charges them to silence until his resurrection because they don't get it all yet, clearly. And they'll be sure to create misunderstandings if they share what they know at this point. For now, what they know is for their own growth and belief, and they oblige, but they are still asking questions of Jesus. It says in verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They know what is prophesied in the book of Malachi, that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord and when God would begin to restore the world. And they've just seen Elijah. So Peter's likely still hoping. It's amazing. If you read through the Gospels, you just see over and over and over again how much the disciples keep hoping against hope that they can skip suffering. And in verse 12, Jesus says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. He's saying, yes, as it's prophesied, the prophet does come first, but you assume that the restoration that he was inaugurating comes without suffering. But Jesus says to them, and how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And what did they do to him? They did to him whatever they pleased. 
as it is written of him. Jesus is saying, how does this fit into your paradigm? This prophet, this prophesied second Elijah did come. It was John the Baptist, as Matthew makes explicit. And Jesus says, as it is written, he suffered. In fact, if we read the story in the Gospel of Mark, we know that the John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded by King Herod. And Jesus says, and I, the Son of Man, will suffer as well. That is unavoidable in order to accomplish my task. And not only that, the path which the second Elijah calls us to on the road to restoration is the path to repentance. The path over and over again turning, of turning away from ourselves and our own aims and our own kingdom visions and back to Jesus. Jesus is saying, you must walk with me in this in-between time. Jesus is telling his disciples that they must walk in the valley. They cannot yet live in the transfiguration scene. Our situation is a little bit different. At our point in the scripture's story, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that gives us tremendous hope. Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And that tells us that when the world is restored, he will come back and raise us from the dead and wipe away every tear from our eyes. But as you well know, in the meantime, we must walk in the valley through hardship and suffering, living in the daily humble practice of repentance, falling short of loving God, confessing our sins, receiving his grace, and continuing to humbly love God and neighbor. And here's where all this begins to come together. God has prepared the disciples to walk in the valley. He gives them what they need in order to walk in the valley. I said at the beginning that the disciples were rattled by Jesus' teaching of the necessity of his own suffering and that we are rattled by his radical call to self-denial and losing our lives that we might gain true life in him. And what they need in the midst of the rattling is given to them. They need a glimpse of heaven a vision of this Jesus who is both glorious, a glorious divine king and a suffering servant. And that's why we have to worship. If we are going to live in the in-between time, walking in the valley where Jesus' death and resurrection has occurred, but we await the final restoration, we have to worship. Because worship gives us a glimpse of the final beauty that we await, and it reminds us that God is worth waiting for. And they need to listen to Jesus. If we don't believe that Jesus has come to suffer for our sake, we can never suffer through the difficulty of death or being faced with our own failures. We'll never be able to offer sacrificial love without an expectation of it being returned by our neighbors. We won't have a willingness to be shaped by Jesus' commands, even when they might mean that the people that we really want to like us will not respect us. But if we can soak in Jesus' words and see that through him, we are the beloved children of God, then our tight grip on short-term happiness can begin to lose its power. Even our grief and death can have final hope. We have to listen to Jesus' words. If the disciples do that, they are equipped to follow Jesus in the valley, 
to the cross. Elijah and Moses both failed at their tasks. Yet because of God's mercy, they are still heralded as prophets. The people of God were not renewed through them in their ministries ultimately, but as is displayed in the transfiguration, they get to commune closely with this glorious Jesus. That same glorious Jesus died and rose so that we, though we often fail in our task of loving him and loving our neighbor, will one day be able to stay on top of the mountain when Jesus will fully and finally come to make his dwelling place with us. And as we worship and listen, God will equip us in the here and now to walk in the valley as we await his final coming. Let me pray for us, then we'll do a couple questions. Father, uh, we come this morning, um, <laughs> at least I am humbled by this text because it, uh, it doesn't exactly feel fully satisfying in the ways that I want it to, and yet it feels a lot like the tension of the life that we live in. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us a glimpse of heaven and that you have given us your words. But Lord, as people who feel far short of the task, and we are, remind us that you've also sent your spirit to be with us and in us, to remind us of your teachings. And that as we gather weekly in worship, that you shape us and renew us and give us the strength for what you call us to. We pray that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, the first question. Is it possible that Peter's suggestion of building tents comes from his history of experiencing God in the temple? That they thought that they needed a place or even a church to experience them? This is a great question. And there's two pieces of it that I want to kind of press into. The first is, yes, definitely. Peter did have this sort of this expectation that Jesus or that, that God would dwell with his people in a place. Uh, throughout God's history, there's always been a people and a place and a purpose, right? All those things are bound up together. Um, uh, God's promise is bound up in the midst of that. Um, and in John, I believe it's chapter 4, uh, Jesus says that uh, my people will not necessarily just worship in Jerusalem, but they will worship me in spirit and in truth, not just in that place. But ultimately, as the story of the scripture unfolds in all places around the world. But the one thing that I also want to press back on, and I don't know if this is part of the question or not, but I think that we often take that to mean, well, if, if we don't just experience God in the temple, then that means that my individual relationship with Jesus, apart from the context of the church, is just as sufficient. And if, that's, if, that, if you feel that pull... I'm not surprised because we all feel that pull because we live in America, <laughs> the epicenter of individualism in the world and also throughout history. But this is what I would say, and I think that the scriptures teach. God is not bound to a temple, nor was he ever. That was a place that symbolized that he was with his people. But secondly, in God's providence, he has chosen to gather with us as a people. What is the story that we're preparing ourselves for? 
Where is the story headed? The ultimate transfiguration where we actually are with God. Is it each of us individually with God? No. The story is a banquet feast where we as one people collectively are the bride of Christ. And so what we do now is to prepare for that. And so we are intended to be, yes, of course, God meets us on some level individually, but ultimately what he calls us to primarily, and he tells us that he will, Jesus says, where two or three gather together in my name, when we gather as God's people, he meets with us. All right, last question. On the subject of worship, I worship more easily at home, especially when alone or on a hike. How can we worship God more fully, especially during worship at the church service? At times, music and people can feel inhibiting and or like a distraction to a wholehearted or wholly abandoned praise of the Most High God. This is a great question, and it's interconnected with the last one. And in some ways, of course, I want to acknowledge like some of the realities of this, right? Like people are distracting, uh, not because they're trying to be distracting, but it's just like we're easily distracted. I'm very easily distracted as a person. And there is something, too, like when we are by ourselves, we can really sort of be attuned to the particular things that we are feeling and wrestling with. But I think where it falls uh, short is that within it is the conception that the fullness of our understanding of who God is will come primarily by attunement to my experiences. And let me tell you, if that is your paradigm, you will have a conception of God, and it may be deep, but it will only be this wide. We, we are called to worship together because we need to be in a room with people who vote differently than us, who look differently than us, who raise their kids differently than us, and who sometimes we really don't like. Because it is only in that that we get to taste even the, the very beginning of the broadness and the bigness of God's grace and love. It is not just about you or I and the way that we view the world. God is redeeming a diverse people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And if we don't worship together, it may go deep in what we do individually. And that's a good thing. Take one of the prayer guides and do it by yourself on a Sunday morning. Pray on your hikes. Absolutely. I do that too. And it, those things are so grounding for me. But if it doesn't also include wrestling through worshiping with people super different from us, then we will not have a full picture of God. We will more and more have a picture of God that seems to strangely align with our vision for the world. And we need that pushed back on. Um, so that's a great question. And as is true in so many of these questions, it's yes, but. <laughs> it's not an either or. There's so much both and in the midst of all of this. Um, as we move to the Lord's table, um, I'll pray for us briefly um, one more time, and Brad will lead us to the table. Uh, Father, we come this morning uh, just recognizing that you are really good, uh, and that you are really big, and that your glory is something that um, if we were to come fully in contact with, we would say and do a lot of awkward and weird things. <laughs> uh, but we thank you, Jesus that you move towards us anyway, uh, that you know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, you know our misunderstandings of you. Uh, you know our individualism. You know our fear of being shaped by you, even amidst your people.
but we ask, Lord, that you would settle us with your truth by your spirit, that you would remind us of who you are even as we come to the table. In Jesus' name.